Hello, and welcome to the Roehampton Podcast. My name is Dominic Jakes, and I'm a master's student here at Roehampton studying creative writing. And my name is Ocean Lee, and I'm a master's in uh, business administration student here at Roehampton University. So our guest today is Tim Atkins. Tim is a senior lecturer in creative writing at Roehampton. His 2014 collection of poems, Petrarch, Collected Atkins, was a Times Literary Supplement Book of the Year. His most recent collection, Nothing, was published in 2021. He has been widely published in the UK, Canada, the US and Europe, and his work has been studied at postgraduate level at both Harvard and Sorbonne. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I want to start by getting your opinion on the value of poetry. Um, so let's rewind 200 years. In the early 19th century, poetry is more popular than novels, right? And instead of watching Netflix, couples are reading these 12,000 line poems. You're looking at me like that's not true. <laughs> um, is that sort of your understanding? Am I incorrect about that? But poetry is more important now or was then? Uh, I'm saying that then it was more widely read than novels, say, in the early 19th century. It, you know, it's a good question. I, I have to say, I don't really know the answer to that. Um, the development of the novel obviously came along later in you know in time than the dissemination and, and pleasure yes. taken in poetry in terms of how many people read and enjoyed it i think that's a difficult question to answer in as much as um, the most read poet in england between something like 1600 and 1800 was horace the latin poet because horace was the set poet for every school person mm. going you know so it, 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 in terms of what was read for pleasure and who was doing the reading and why they were doing it is a it's a question <laughs> i know the question i don't know the answer though i have to say um the novel obviously took over in the yes. 19th century though and, and poetry occupied the kind of niche position that it has occupied differently and since since then so today people have a sense i think that their lives would be less rich and less sort of worthwhile if they didn't have music in their lives and i think that's for me something quite interesting to note that people could go an entire lifetime without reading a poem for pleasure and yet people would feel very deprived if they went an entire lifetime without music at least they had some initial exposure to, to music and mm. so um, it sort of gets me interested in the question of what do you think the value of poetry is and the value of literature is, you know, what value has it added to your life? Uh, and do you think there's something that people can sort of miss out on if they don't ever get sort of exposed to it or are never introduced in the right way so they can actually appreciate it? Because the GCSE system doesn't necessarily uh, work that well to encourage people to, to love poetry. No, indeed. I mean, it's a big question in as much as my life, obviously, I'm 60 years old. I've loved reading poetry since 15 or so, really. When I, when you, you know, at 15, you have choices about what you are spending your time with. And from then, I was choosing to read poetry. I'm also a, a, a very obsessive music consumer. And quite often, I've kind of thought about the, the difference between the two things and the value that they bring to my life. I've made a living as a poet, ridiculously enough in a way, um, through not through book sales, but through teaching in university. And I think it's clear that the value that people get if they are shown the right poetry and 
they're able to, you know, just kind of read widely and generously, then there's a huge amount of value to it. Whether one's life is empty or devalued or whatever, less good if you don't ever have poetry. I think that I, who cares on one level is my answer to that. I think music is a for me is a much kind of purer and more direct cultural experience in as much as you you can share it at a dance or whatever and and certainly people my age music was the common the cultural common denominator of certainly my generation everyone grew up listening to the same records and you know ridiculous pop stars were treated as if they had answers to the world's problems in in the way that i think people ascribed that to poets at some maybe point which never existed but the the, the kind of idea of poet as seer or you know wordsworth knew more about the world and therefore we would benefit from participating in the poetry of x y or z um i'm it's a tough one because part of me would say there is huge value to be had from having a happy poetry reading life. And then there's another part of me which would say, who cares? You know, who let's feed people and think about those things. Poetry comes after you've fed people and dealt with those issues which the kind of bourgeois people who talk about the essential nature of poetry tend to overlook, I think. Yeah, I think that's that's very fair. It puts into my mind uh, the one the one poet that's probably more than words worse, Lord Byron, the sort of pop star of the early 19th century, you know, mad, bad and dangerous to know. Um, I think he was fairly famous, fairly notorious and a womanizer. And I think that's probably closer to our modern pop stars in the music world than Wordsworth in some sense. Yeah, good point. Yes, yes. I mean, celebrity existed in in different way, but existed in that thing. And I think that's, but that's also a terrible model for poets <laughs> in that we valorize, I say we, not me, but the wider culture valorizes the kind of poet as transgressive, revolutionary figure. And I've grown up very happily in being a poet in the US and New York and San Francisco, being a poet in London, Paris, and, and seeing the kind of, in part, model of Baudelaire, Rimbaud, the poet as a kind of revolutionary figure being the mode which the wider culture latches onto. Jim Morrison, one of the absolute most incompetent users of words <laughs> in the 20th century, being held up as a, you know, kind of a poet and a revolutionary and all the rest of it. Poets who call themselves revolutionaries generally are just rebels who want to have a lot of sex and drugs and sign themselves off as world-changing spiritual leaders. It seems to me a lot of them are just kind of narcissists. Again, like pop stars. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Back to Byron, right? Yes. Yeah, not, not very much... Not... Not a perfect advert for becoming a poet, um, but yeah, that's a very, very fair point. Okay, so let's turn to the study of creating writing at university. 
Um, so as I see it, every academic discipline is trying sort of in part to find solutions to a set of problems. Um, so for instance, historians are trying to find a reliable and balanced way to write histories and they're taught methods to do that. And I imagine Ocean that business students are trying to do something. We try to do some things, yeah. But, um, I mean, it's obviously, you know, we're in the same domain in terms of we're trying to solve problems, right? Um, mostly, you know, a lot of business problems resolve around you either providing innovation, right? Or you're coming up with basically just new novel ideas for either just a um, business practice, right? Or maybe a new product line, you know, all like the basic entrepreneurship stuff. Um, but I think you kind of get to the, the heart of it is that you're really focusing on um, solving those problems in, you know, via a new approach, whether that's, you know, you're coming from a more sustainability side, like we're having more discussions on today, which is great, right? Um, workers are becoming uh, better treated around the globe, right? And the, just the idea of globalization and all these other complex forces um, allow for, <laughs> I guess, a lot of problems to exist, right? So um, businesses to... Business students in general, I think, are trying to approach, you know, these maybe traditional business methodologies and adapt them to a, like, very dynamic environment. So, you know, just like any field, other than maybe there's a lot faster pace because there's a lot of money involved. So, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's about it. Yeah. I think most people would have the sense that success of business would mean making money. Is that is that sort of the that, central generally, spirit? That would generally be it. I mean, I guess you could say an argument... Um, to where, you know, there's a lot of very successful ventures that don't actually make money, right? They they come up with, um, like, for a great example, uh, like Snapchat. Like, that's a, a very popular app, especially for, you know, our demographics. And that wasn't profitable, like, ever, pretty much. It's still, like, even though it's profitable maybe on the books, so it's mostly because, like, a tax write-off. And there's examples like that to where even though the company's never made money, it's a very successful product, and it's changed even some way that we communicate, right? At least to a certain level with, you know, doing short-form um, communication via just, you know, pictures and video. Uh, so that type of, like, even way that changes our social, you know, life without potentially generating profit, but just generating revenue and a, a very unique idea is, I think, just an example of... Maybe it doesn't have to make money, but it, it does provide a service, right? And I think there's a, a large argument for what is the true value and influence of a product rather than maybe just the monetary value. And I think that's a, a newer idea that's come along from just technology having the crazy ramp these last 20 years or so. But yeah. That's very, very interesting. Um, and so sort of jumping off of that, um, what does success look like uh, as a poet or as a as somebody involved in writing literature, um, if success of business is making money or creating a successful product, what is success in poetry? What are we trying to do? When students come to Rahampton to study creative writing, what is it they're coming to learn? What is it that is sort of being aimed at? I think there's a lot of different answers to that question in as much as on one level, I think for any creative artist, success consists of saying, I've done what I wanted to do here. If you're a filmmaker, that involves a lot of money getting, you know, along the way in order for you to be able to do what you want to do. With a poet, money's not involved. You just write the darn thing and that, that's what happens. Um, so personally, success constitutes saying, I wrote that poem okay. Um, in the wider world, for me as a 
successful, if you will, poet. The success consists of saying, I communicated to people who I respect because it's a small world in poetry world. So, you know, people who whose writing I admire have read my work. I've read in you know, lots of different continents and lots of different places and people have come along and have bought books and got something from that. That's a kind of measure of success. In terms of what a successful student outcome is, it's hard to say. I think some students come to Roehampton and if they leave saying, I had three years in which I enjoyed the pleasures of using words and I had enough time to think about not necessarily monetarizable use of my time, I think that's great. I When I teach, I just had a poetry class this morning and I very much doubt of the 20 people in class, any of them will kind of spend the next 40 years of their life the way I have, being obsessed with how you put 14 words on a piece of paper. Um, but the interaction of thinking words give me pleasure and becoming conscious of your emotional processes and the ways that those non-verbal modes of living become transferred to paper, I think that's a really valuable and happy use of three years for a BA, for example. Brilliant. And it leads me on to the question, how do people improve their writing? So say you have an aim for your writing. How is it that somebody else can come along and maybe help you to achieve that aim? How is it that, say, studying creative writing can actually help you to achieve that? Because if we say that's the problem, the problem is that you want to write a poem and you want to do it well, and you're not yet sure how to do that well. How do students bridge that gap? <laughs> There's a, a lovely quote by the uh, American short story writer Flannery O'Connor, and they, they, I don't know if it's an apocryphal tale, but they said to Flannery O'Connor, um, uh, Ms. O'Connor, uh, how do you feel about uh, creating writing classes uh, going on in university? He said, and she said, creative writing classes, you think they stifle? I, I don't think they stifle young writers. They don't stifle enough of them. <laughs> and uh, I think the, the, the kind of point that I'm making there is that the, the business of how you write and kind of what you write and the, how you improve someone. The way you improve as a footballer is you play lots of football. The way you improve as a musician, you spend 10 hours a day with your instrument. And the way that you improve as a poet is you read obsessively, you write obsessively, and you edit obsessively. And Again, for maybe all of us in this room, for you know, to kind of people who are learning anything at any age, generally, the way you learn is you have those transformative moments when you get a book. This is for you know, for a poet, you get a book and you go, I want to have the ability to do everything this poet does. Gertrude Stein, I want to write like Stein because Stein is an extraordinary writer, and so you copy that person in the way that a footballer will copy 
stepovers by Messi, the way that a guitarist will practice, you know, you name your, your guitarist that you like. And so for me as a teacher, what I can do with a student is I can be an enthusiastic advocate of my subject and can make that person go, this seems interesting and exciting. Again, we're all here at a university, presumably because at some points in our life we've had teachers who have inspired us in a subject area or something like that. And so what a student at a university will get is someone saying, read this book, read that book, and hopefully... I just had a class this morning and I really like doing this. I took in a big box of about 100 books of poetry because poetry books are not thick, right? So I'm not Superman. But I took in lots of thin volumes and just put them on the floor. And the second half of the class, I said, well, just go and look at them. And that's what we did. And someone will presumably or hopefully pick up a book by, for example, Morgan Parker and go... I love Morgan Parker's writing and I want to be like Morgan Parker as a writer and I'm going to go forward like that. And so you can't make a lousy writer into a brilliant writer, but you can say to a lousy writer, here are some fantastic models and here are ways of thinking about being a writer. And I mean, I've never been a extraordinarily, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, kind of a prodigy. I've always had to work at writing and editing my work and thinking about it and copying people. And so for me as a teacher, what you do is you say to people, this is exciting and I think this will be right for you. And so that's how it works. I'm very interested in that copying idea that you mentioned because I think, at least for some people, there could be a hesitancy to have that go through that stage of sort of learning. And if you go to your art museums, you'll always see the artists sitting around copying the Titians and so forth. But I think the, I think especially maybe when I started out with poetry, you know, you've just heard a few songs and you want to write some lyrics. The lyrics are not necessarily great poetry, but that's what you're trying to copy. Um, but there can be sort of a hesitancy there to try and emulate other people before because it's been so... So much of a desire to have an original voice immediately rather than to have that stage of copying and aspiring before then moving on into to something more original. Do you think that's like that holds some people back or is that just <laughs> me? I, oh, I'm rolling my eyes because people who are poets and particularly that's the case in the culture because I said to my class this morning, first first week of uh, second year poetry, middle said, how many people have got five books of poetry and about half the class put their hands up. And I said, how many people have got 10 books of poetry? And about a quarter of the class. And I said, how many people have got more than 20? And no hands went up. And if you said to everyone, how many CDs have you got? You know, how many albums have you got? I teach a copywriting class and you say, how many ads have you looked at in your life? And it's tens, hundreds of thousands. And so... Someone who says, I'm a poet and I want to write poetry, and you think, what kind of cultural reservoir are you bringing to this? And they're bringing like a puddle, you know? <laughs> they're bringing birthday cards and they're bringing the kind of absolute nonsense that their mum and dad thought was a poem from the TV or, or you know, some movie with some stereotypical view of what a poet is like and so 
you really have to fight against that. And you've also got to fight against the kind of romantic notion of a artist, if you express yourself truly, you're expressing yourself with originality. And the number of people who write a poem or a piece of prose saying, I, I did this and they smiled from ear to ear. And it, it's the, the, the kind of reservoir of stock phrases and metaphors and, and terrifyingly banal poetry, which they bring to classes. You almost do better having a student who says, I've read nothing than a student who says, yeah, I know a bit about poetry and and, and you think, yeah, you know all the bad bits because you know what you had to, you were forced to study at secondary school. And both of my daughters studied poetry at secondary school, knowing that dad was a poet, knowing that the house was absolutely overflowing with books. They both can't stand poetry because they're taught it by teachers mm. who actually don't like it and don't understand it. And they have a curriculum where the poetry is completely banal. So what people bring along is, on one level, it's exciting because my job is really easy because all I do is show them some good poetry. The, the kind of metaphor I use quite often is, it's like if you're in a cooking class and you come to cooking class because you want to cook and all you've had is baked beans <laughs> your whole life. And then someone says, Look, there's Thai food, and there's Indian food, and there's Japanese food, and there's vegan food, and there's all of these types of food. And you're showing them to someone who's just had baked beans. And it's job done, in a way, for me, because the beautiful poetry does the work for me, because there's a lot of amazing writing. And generally, people respond to that. Yeah, I think that, that really lands with me. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think there's another way that students can be misled. And we had a great conversation in private about this the other day. So I want to talk a bit about academic language. Um, <laughs> you're laughing already. Um, and the ways that can mislead a student. So not only can do people come in perhaps not having read much poetry, but they're then told to do research. They're told to look into, their, to look into the archives if they're in a master's level program. And sometimes they don't always understand what that means. So can you talk a bit about how people can go wrong with that, how they can misunderstand that and what that really is? You know, what, what are universities really asking when they're asking students to use this academic language to talk about their poetry? I think when you talk about academic language, academic language works fine with academics, but academic language hits an enormous brick wall when you speak in academic language to creative people who've never heard the terms before. And the problem, I think, I know it's a problem because I've got many years of experience of, of, of having these conversations with people, is creative people come to university and they get told at a certain point that what they're doing is research and what they are doing is they're having to kind of understand and work with archives. And the misunderstanding then comes along that the, for example, the poet, if we're going to talk about poets, the poet thinks, oh my goodness, how do I research my subject? And so I've had students, I mean, one of the reasons I realized there was a problem is when I started teaching at universities, um, I was teaching a dissertation module and students were told they had to uh, do their research. And 
so one student said, I'm, I'm going to write a collection of love poems. And I said, OK, well, tell me about your research. And they said, well, I'm going to ask all my friends. I'm going to do a questionnaire. I'm going to ask all my friends about love. And I kind of uh, I went, oh, Lord, you've really got this wrong. And you're not wrong for thinking that because you're being told you have to do research. But what research means for a creative person is read lots of love poetry. And write lots of love poetry and you research. So if research, research should be rephrased and it should be called something like learning or that'll do. And so if you're researching poetry, that means you're reading a lot of poetry and it means you then have to write a lot of poetry. And the way you learn about writing a sonnet is not by asking 45 people what a sonnet is. <laughs> you write 450 sonnets, and by the end of writing 450 of the darn things, you've probably figured out what works and what doesn't work. And so research is... There's a, a, that leads to the phrase practice as research, and I think that's just as bad in a way. And so at a previous university I worked at, we, we wanted to just call it doing and so you figure it out by doing, you know, and making. And so creative people make things. We research things in the way that if you're writing a series of poetry, of poems about a particular subject, which is in kind of quite unusual in a way, you don't get a book of poems where you're writing about the Victorian sewage system. It's possible, you, but if you are doing research, then you're going off and you're going to somewhere and you're finding out more stuff about it. But generally for poets, research means thinking about the meaning of life and figuring out how you use words well. And you research, sorry, and the last thing, and you research that by reading 100 poets who've written love poems. I think you put it very well the other day as well, because you added that it's really you're coming here to do what you love, to continue doing what you love as a writer, and then you're just translating what you're doing into a language that makes sense and allows you perhaps to think about it critically, but which makes sense in academic context. But the, at the centre, you're not trying to do something completely new when you come to university necessarily. You're just extending what you're already doing as a writer. Yeah, absolutely. And and for me, it's very much an unresolved, what is it, square peg, round hole kind of thing in as much as because of the universal metrics that universities kind of want to have around assessment and the increasing homogenization of of just discourses and outcomes and all of the the, the kind of forgive me i think it's nonsense the, the the kind of way that everyone has to meet the metrics that accountants are demanding mm. um rather than the particularities of individual disciplines but yeah, you come to do something that you love and you're then told that what you love has to be contextualized and assessed as well, um, according to the same way that you assess the way a particle physicist's um, PhD is assessed. And it, I mean, you can understand on one level that putting poetry in the academy of course, is going to involve more than just drinking a glass of absinthe and asking several, <laughs> you know, other people if they think it's marvelous or not. But um, the way that it's done and the way that it's all kind of monetarized and the, the whole 
kind of performance of standardization is really tough. And like you say, every year we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago, every year I know that the creative writers who do modules in which they're having to talking talk about research and having an archive. My archive is my office, which is completely full of books of poetry. So can we just quickly pause there? So what is an archive normally and what is an archive in the specific context of creative writing? Well, again, archive is maybe the wrong word for our purposes in that a better word would be collection. You know, I mean, if if you're an, an archive of people who collect those footballer cards that you get in bubblegum or whatever, you know, I mean, if you've got thousands of them, it's an archive. And that just means you've got a horde of stuff that is subject specific. And so, yeah, okay, that's archive equals horde of subject specific stuff. And so for us, it's books, could be music, right? If music informs your 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 thing, it could be um, clothes. If you're kind of particularly interested in, in fashion and the way that people are you know, dressing and the way that the, the the culture expresses itself, a poet could say an archive that's really important for me is having a wardrobe full of these particular labels or whatever. Yeah, I've always thought about it just as stuff that inspires you. As For a writer, an archive is just stuff that inspires you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And week one of an archive module, it would be useful for the creative people to have that in like slide number two. <laughs> Um, I think actually uh, I have one question for you, Tim, on that is kind of going back to, you know, how we um, do assessments for a creative program. If you had, I guess, you know, maybe this is too broad of a question, right? But for the, um, if you were running a program yourself, what would, how would you quantify like the creative experience? Like if you were going to run the whole module yourself, right? And say, hey, this is the deliverables we want at the end of it, right? So for my understanding of things, obviously, I'm probably more technical, right, in terms of um, how I approach academia because I come from uh, a STEM degree for my undergraduate and now being in business, uh, it's obviously it's different, uh, even though you're seeing us focus more on creative aspects like financial reports are now having more. We're having, you know, two or three paragraphs or sorry, two or three pages of paragraphs of just anecdotal um, kind of stories from companies and from management because it's it's important and it's what people want to read, right? So I guess my question is when you come from a complete creative side of academia, what would you like to see when you formalize those types of assessments or um, what deliverables you want for an average student of your program, right, to get on the end of it? Yeah, it's really easy answer in that what you do is you say, what did you want to do? You say that to each individual person. What did you want to do as a writer? Did you do that? And then you go, how well did you do that? And those are the kind of two questions. And so a student would maybe say, I, I've had this quite recently with a number of students, is that there's a poet called Rupi Kaur, who is, if you go to a airport lounge bookstore, Rupi Kaur is there. It's absolutely pop poetry. And a lot of students want to write like Rupi Kaur. And Rupi Kaur, as a poet, writes doggerel. As a voice of the emotional 
inner life of young women. She's an extremely important figure, I think, in that she's absolutely kind of allowed people to, to articulate the way they feel about being on the planet. She also articulates that way in a really terrifyingly banal way mm. um, as a writer. But I've in recent years had students coming along saying, Rupi Kaur is who I love. I want to write like Rupi Kaur. And again, I've had conversations with other teachers of poetry and their view is if someone writes like Rupi Kaur, the poetry is terrifyingly bad and therefore the mark will be accordingly low. Mm. For me... I think that just opens a can of worms on one level around um, what we're asking from students and the, the position of kind of power and privilege and all the rest of it. So for me, if someone came in and said, I want to write like Rupi Kaur because I really like Rupi Kaur, I would say, okay, show me your work. How close are you to achieving your desired outcome? Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, I would say, and you know, really, how well are you doing that? Are you doing that in a way that kind of is original or kind of contributes more than just being like a kind of successful pastiche of a single writer? Are you able to bring in other influences to make something which I'm suspicious of the word voice, but which is an identifiable voice that you have going on? And I think if you as a teacher are able to do that and see that and that's how you assess. I mean, in a perfect world, I would have lots of students who've read Gertrude Stein rather than Rupi Kaur, but that's my world on one level and what right have I got to impose my world on mm. a lot of different people? And so the kind of dance that we have is someone comes saying, I like Rupi Kaur and me, and I'm used to this now. And I'll say, well, how about reading Morgan Parker? And how about reading X, Y, and Z, five other poets who occupy the same kind of emotional and linguistic landscape, but who do it way better? And so hopefully what I do in those kind of circumstances is that the kind of how well do you do it is the first stage, but then how do you change that and develop and move forward is the bit where you say, oh, try this and try that. Right. And that makes complete sense, you know, in the context of the larger discussion of you saying, you know, really the value in your archive is right, is how much you're going to really, um, I guess, accumulate over time, right? How many things you're exposed to. So it makes sense on the academic or university level, like that's your goal, right? For your students says, hey, you really like this, but what you're saying is, you know, if I'm understanding correctly, how can you provide a unique, you know, yeah. uh, almost change to this, right? And even if you want to stay within that niche that you really enjoy. Um, I think my other question comes from, uh, again, more just from my, like, personal, I guess you could say, um, aspirations. I don't know. I, I come from more of my background of saying, like, my exposure to poetry is uh, a layman would be <laughs> generous. Uh, I honestly haven't read much poetry, but what exposure I do have in modern culture is things like spoken word becoming more prominent. Um, and even, uh, especially if you said you spent time on the East Coast, uh, like hip hop, right? Like 90s hip hop. There's um, even like one I think of as like a poet, right? In a modern context is like MF Doom. He's an, a hip hop artist that's been known 
for his verses. And even though a lot of people maybe don't like his style necessarily, he's, you know, known in that community as such an effective, um, I guess you could say linguist, I don't know a better word for it. Um, but how do you see like those more modern takes of poetry? And what do you think is, you know, 10 to 15 years from now, do you think there could be like um, a modern revival of like traditional poetry? Or do you think it's going to be another... I don't know, almost musical offset of poetry, because like, as you said, uh, like music is a very cultural experience and it's something that we're exposed to day to day. And it's very um, intertwined with just, I guess, pop culture and just media. And it's easy to experience. Right. In the same way as like audiobooks have almost taken down um, the effort that you have to put to consume content. So when you look at, you know, modern day poetry, what do you think is the next step in terms of um having accessible poetry and do you think there's maybe a death of like long form for that or uh, i guess just what do you think is the best way to experience poetry now i think there's tons of different ways of experience you've listed most of them in a way yeah, yeah. do you know what i mean i think maybe that oh, this doesn't sound patronizing what you probably don't know is i think that now is the best time ever to be a poet mm -hmm. because there's more poetry available. The internet has completely transformed the amount of writing which is available to anyone. Um, the business of kind of hip-hop and words plus music, that's clearly where more people access people who are using words creatively in a kind of poetry style because rap and is poetry more than prose is right sure. or whatever right so so that kind of business the problem for me often with rap is not with rap it's with rhyme mm. and so when you're dealing with rhyme you've got such a ball and chain around your ankle that forcing meaning into rhyme means that it's a really terrifyingly bad fit a lot of the time, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I grew up loving songwriters, and before I liked poetry, I liked all the typical white 70s youth people like, um, I don't know, Marvin Gaye and Bob Dylan and you know all the typical people who you go, oh, the words, listen to the words. Um, and so... There's more people saying, listen to the words. Oh, I was listening to Tyler, the creator, mm -hmm. yesterday and going, yeah, okay, I get, I get, I'm, I'm, I'm good with this. And a lot of the words are clearly interesting and thoughtfully used, but they still clunk around a lot. And I don't have a problem with that because they exist with the music. And when you've got those two things going together, there was there was a very traditional poet called Robert Lowell who was asked in the 60s about Bob Dylan. And, and he was clearly asked uh, a question about whether Bob Dylan was a poet or not with the kind of idea that he would be very sneering about the whole thing. And again, I've used this a lot in class with people who said I really like hip-hop lyrics and all the rest of it. And Lowell said... Um, Dylan's a really fine writer, but he leans too much upon the crutch of his guitar. And I mean, that may be a terrible metaphor, but I think when you're leaning on rhyme and rhythm, you're producing and using words in a way which are accommodating 
rhyme, rhythm, and language. And when you're doing that, you have different outcomes. And I would say they're not worse than any other outcome, but they've got a different set of ingredients. Mm. And the way that poetry, the state of the art of poetry is now, is, again, I was in class this morning, it was really fantastic because a lot of the writers that I take in and that I'm particularly interested in are kind of women probably in their 30s, probably 40s now, because by the time you've got three or four books out, you're getting to that age. But um, I mentioned Morgan Parker, Ariana Raines. There's a whole group of American, because that's particularly my interest, but American writers who are writing with great much more freedom about colour, about sexuality, about gender and all the rest of it. And so if you were to look at the books of poetry that are getting wider, well, first and foremost, getting published, and secondly, have quite wide circulation. The whole business of there being a much more kind of democratic and open forum in which things are being talked about. Um, the, the the kind of boundaries between what was talked about in music and rap and mm -hmm. and all of that now exists equally and in a way said with greater articulacy in poetry. But that doesn't make it better, right? Because they're not doing it with music and rhyme. But um, the future of poetry, <laughs> the future of poetry is already here and it's people of different, much wider class, much more discourse around gender and you know all the genders which we can be thinking and writing about. Um, it's just a way better, healthier place now. And if you dig around in the world of poetry, now it's way better than it's ever been. So one of the things I've been thinking about recently is that sort of traditionally education has been associated not only with gaining knowledge, but also with the sort of formation of a person's character. So there's this old adage, and I think it was um, Einstein that said it's most famously, but it's been repeated often. Uh, education is what remains when one has forgotten everything one learned in school. So it's sort of the idea that you might forget all the specific facts you learned at university, and yet something will remain because you were formed as a person in the process of learning. I guess that got me to thinking, and I don't know if this is quite a personal question, but if you'd never written sort of a word of poetry or you'd never become a writer, do you think you would have been a different person? Um, obviously, you'd have a different job, but do you think it's actually would make you a different person? Or do you think there is a sort of dissociation between you being a writer and just your personality and who you are? <laughs> Uh, my dad would have been a lot happier if I'd never <laughs> written any poetry, I can tell you that much. Um, I think that for me, I, I see this in my, my daughter who's 13, my youngest daughter, There's in certain people there is a strong urge to be creative in some way. And there's also, I, I'm not quite sure how connected they are or not, but there's also curiosity. Again, we're all at university because we've been cu continuously curious about s stuff, right? And I think the, the business, I was a curious kid and I was a creative kid. I painted and did everything I could creatively. Um, I was a terrible musician. I still am. Um, and so the, if... When I was 13, if you'd said to me, you can play guitar well, I would have been a musician for sure. And I couldn't do that, but I loved words as well. So it was very kind of clear that my creativity was going to go down some kind of 
non-musical path. Um, I've got a book of, one of my books is a book of my photographs as well. And another path I could have taken if digital photography had existed when I was a kid rather than being in a dark room and it being way too slow a process. Um, I might well have ended up being a photographer. Um, me being a poet is interesting and in as much as the way that I've happily lived my life has been completely determined by being a poet. This doesn't I know this is going off at a tangent from your question to a certain extent, in as much as I went and lived in San Francisco because I wanted to hang out with the poets there, because they were the people I admired. And the friends I made were poets and therefore do you know what I mean? My world has been consistently one where I've made my choices according to where poetry took me. And I've been really blessed and lucky with that because I've there aren't many poets in history who've been able to feed their family off the back of talking about poetry. And the Academy has, of course, allowed that for the first time in history, really. So so that's been good. Um poetry itself. I think there's two ways of looking at it in as much as on one level, poetry was just the car that I drove around in, right? And I could have just as easily jumped in another car, photography or, or, or whatever. Um, but it it was, it's like the old poetry kind of cliche that you always teach form is content and content is form, right? And so, you know, the, the I don't know which way around it goes, the form that I chose illustrates kind of determined my content but the content i was interested also was attracted to the particular form which is poetry so that's wonderful and i think just one very quick question to finish up on are there any habits that good writers have that non-writers would do well to copy oh, it's a general answer i guess curiosity maybe um endurance maybe that's that's not limited to writing is it but i think if I'm generalizing, success in life perhaps comes from the ability to see something through to a conclusion and happiness in life comes from the ability to engage in things that please you. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Tim. Pleasure. It's been lovely talking to you. It's been yeah, great. Thanks. It's been great.